0: Hey, I'm Austin and welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Today we continue our teaching series, Molten Moments, where we look at seasons of events in life that involve loss, pain, or crisis. Today we spend time in John chapter 21, where we look at when Jesus restores Peter, and Pastor Eric relates that in a very personal way for us. We started a series last week called Molten Moments. And a molten moment can be described this way. It's a season of disappointment or a season of pain or a season of crisis. That's really what it is. A molten moment is a disappointment, a pain, or some type of crisis. You can probably describe it this way. It's anything in life that begins the process of melting us down. And whether that's a disappointment or a pain or a severe crisis, it's just the stuff that invades our lives, that gets us down and begins to melt away our confidence in God and in ourselves. Molten moments. When one hears the word molten, you generally think of lava. And lava or lava rock is the stuff that gets expelled from volcanoes when they erupt. And when lava begins to flow, it is anywhere from 1,200 to 2,000 degrees. It's hot, it's deadly, and it's no good for you. Like, this is stuff you want to stay away from. It's not going to help if you get near it. Kind of like molten lava cake, right? This is like my favorite cake right now, and I know you guys aren't going to hear anything I say the rest of the day, because you're going to be thinking about how you need to get this molten lava cake and this chocolate stuff that is hot on the inside, but do not be deceived, chocolate molten lava cake is hot, it's deadly, and it is no good for you. So molten lava or molten lava cake, it's just a hot mess, it is, kind of like Molten Moments. These moments that just sneak into our lives unannounced. They don't knock on the door and say, hey, I'm coming and it's going to be a bad season and a bad day for you, so get ready and get prepared. Molten moments don't do that. They just come in unannounced and they leave us unprepared and overwhelmed and hopeless. It's just what they do. Today I want us to think about this. It's the molten moment of epic failure. By the way, we all fail in life, all of us, and whether that's a big failure or a relatively small thing, we all fail. We all experience this. Think of the collective failure of everybody in this room. If we were to stack all of that up, it would be incredible, and we would say, look out. And here's the thing. When we fail, and we all do, on different levels, when we fail, we fail on our own, and there is nobody around, even those who might be closest to us. We're just on our own. And maybe you've walked through that recently, and you understand the pain of that kind of loneliness. You understand the pain of failure. And maybe that failure is a relationship that just didn't work out. And that's not your fault, but it just didn't work out and you feel kind of bad about it. Or maybe that failure is a habit or a hangout that just won't let go of you. And you want to get to the other side of it, but you can't get there. And as soon as you get close, that habit kind of pulls you back in and you feel bad about that. Or maybe that failure is a parenting thing and some words have been exchanged and you can't get those words back. You'd love to reel them back in, but they're out there. It's already been said. The damage has been done as a parent, and you just feel kind of bad about that. Or maybe that failure is something that you've tried, and you had great intentions and high hopes, and it just didn't work, and you feel bad about that. Or maybe that failure is financial and you're still trying to recover from that. Or maybe that failure is a moral failure and you're still picking up those pieces. Or maybe you really haven't done anything wrong, but you just kind of feel like a person who fails. See, failure comes, and it comes all of the time. And when it visits us, whether it's really, really big or a minor kind of a failure... We are on our own and there are no parties, there are no celebrations, it's just us and we don't tend to like that spot. But listen to this, no one should have missed it. It is often that spot, it's often that place where God meets us and he picks us up and he looks us in the eyes and he says, I don't want your failure to define you. You are not what you've done and you are not what's been done to you. Don't let the past eat your future. That's actually our big idea for today. Don't let the past eat your future because you are not what you've done and you are not what's been done to you. And so it's in these moments where we fail and it gets very, very lonely and there's nobody around us to help us that God picks us up and says, okay, here's the deal. Don't let the past, don't let this failure, big or relatively small. Don't let that define you. Don't let the past eat your future. As I was working on all of this, I kind of came up with three different groups that are probably represented in the room today. Here's group number one. It's those of us who have failed, and that's a part of our past, but we've just kind of buried that. I mean, it's back there, and it's happened, and, you know, whatever. We'll figure it out, and we've been able to move on. It happened, but we've just buried it. That's group number one. Group number two are those of us who have failed, but we're allowing that failure to define us. Like when we look in the mirror, we don't actually see us. We see a failure. And when people talk to us and even try to encourage us, we have a hard time hearing all of that because we filter it through our failure. That's group number two. Group number three are those who really haven't done anything wrong, but they're scared to death of failing. They know it's out there, and so they actually don't attempt many things, and they don't risk in life. They don't risk in relationships because failure is sure to visit, and I want to avoid all of that. The paragraph that we're going to unpack today is the story about an individual who walked through an epic failure in his life. I mean, just a huge failure. And it just about took him out. His name is Peter. And we're going to look at his story in just a bit. But this is a guy who was a disciple of Jesus. He was a close follower. He was with Jesus all of the time. And when you walk through Scripture, you get the idea that Peter as an individual, was outspoken. He was confident. He was always in the middle of the action. He had bright eyes, and he was a lot of fun. Like the other disciples might not have been a lot of fun at times, but Peter was fun. This is the guy that you wanted to be around because he had bright eyes, and he was always in on the action. That's Peter. But in the moments leading up to the death of Jesus, he walked through something that absolutely devastated him. A true molten moment. Before Jesus died, he actually got with Peter, and he said, Peter, you're not going to believe this, but in the process of my trial and arrest and my death, you're actually going to deny the fact that you ever knew me, and you're going to do that three times. And I know you don't believe that and I know you don't get it right now because you're bold and you're confident and you're always right next to me and this doesn't make sense to you, but you're going to deny that you ever knew me. The pressure's going to get to you. And Peter listened to that and he said, nope, not going to happen. Not me, Jesus, because I am confident and I am bold and I would never do that to you. Maybe some of the other disciples, they might pull off something like that, but I believe in you, I love you, I've given my life to you, Jesus, and I will never deny knowing you. That is not going to happen. Well, shortly after that conversation, Jesus is arrested and he's taken away, and Scripture tells us that Peter began to follow Jesus from a distance. I think it's kind of easy to really overlook that phrase and just think that he doesn't want to get caught and he doesn't want people to recognize his connection. But it's a powerful phrase and it gives us an insight into what's happening in Peter's life at this moment because Peter never followed from a distance. It wasn't him. It wasn't part of his DNA. He was always right next to Jesus because he wanted to be in on the action. But here in this moment of fear, he begins to follow from a distance and that got him in trouble. By the way... Following Jesus from a distance will always get us in trouble. It just does. And that's what's happening to Peter. But you can kind of understand it because Jesus is being arrested and they're taking him away. And you know that Peter's filled with fear and doubts about what's going to happen to the one that he's been following. And if they do take him away and if they do kill him, what does that mean for all of us? And this stuff is just ringing in Peter's mind. And he's frightened and no doubt tipped over a bit. Well, Scripture tells us that Peter entered a courtyard area where they had taken Jesus and he's trying to listen to what's happening. And in that courtyard, a woman comes up to him and says, hey, you're one of those followers of that guy, aren't you? I mean, I think I recognize you and I've seen you with him. You're one of those guys, aren't you? And Peter said... No, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know Jesus. Peter moved to a fire where he began to warm his hands because the night was cold and other people were gathering around that fire, and they began to look at him. An individual said, you're one of his, aren't you? Like that guy that's on trial, Jesus, you're a follower of him. You belong to him, don't you? And Peter said, no. No. I don't know Jesus and I don't belong to him. Shortly after that, a servant of the high priest came and said, you belong to Jesus because I'm related to the guy that got his ear lopped off and I think it was you. I remember you. That's my cousin. And by the way, he's still a little mad about that whole ear thing. And you're one of those followers. You were with him. And Peter said, no. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I don't know that guy. Scripture goes on to tell us that it was immediately in that moment right there that Peter realized what he had done and he went out and he wept bitterly. A molten moment. A failure of epic proportions. Somebody who's right next to Jesus, who watched him and observed him and listened to him teach, who lived with him, now denying that he ever even knew him. In Jesus' greatest hour of need, Peter failed. An epic failure, a true molten moment. Well, Jesus is killed after that, and he's buried, and He came back to life, and that's what we celebrated last week, and we had so much fun doing that. And after Jesus came back to life, he started the process of appearing to his disciples and showing himself to them so they would know that he was real and he was alive. And Peter got to experience that. But how do you think he was feeling? You kind of get the sense when you read Scripture that Peter still wasn't the same. He wasn't quite right. I mean, Jesus was alive and... Peter was probably happy about that. After all, he was one of the ones that ran to the tomb and looked in to find out if Jesus was really gone. And so Peter should be pretty excited and pretty ramped up about the fact that his friend, the one that he's been following, the one that he's given his life to, is back and is alive. But there's that whole failure thing. And that's on the inside of Peter, just kind of eating away at him. And you get a real sense that Peter began to push away from Jesus. Like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if it's worth it because of what I've done. And so Peter goes back to his former way of life, what he was doing before Jesus found him. And Peter begins to fish again. That was his job. That's what he knew. It's like it was just too much. The failure is too deep. It's epic. And perhaps Jesus doesn't even want me around anymore. So what we find in John chapter 21 is that Jesus meets Peter in that moment of need. Jesus knew what he was feeling and Jesus knew what he was experiencing just like he knows what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. Jesus gets all of that, he understands it and he meets us in that moment to lift us up and to restore us and this is the beautiful story that we find in John chapter 21. So here's verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And again, that might seem like just a normal thing to say, but it's Peter saying, I'm going back to my old life. I can't handle this anymore, and I'm done. I'm just going to go back to fish, because that's what I know. And I don't know if Jesus wants me around anymore, so I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? In other words, how's that working for you out there on the water? Are you having any luck at all? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. It's kind of remarkable because this is something that Jesus had actually done before and so I think Peter and John one of the other disciples, they're getting it and they're picking up on the fact that hey, this has happened before. Jesus told us to do this another time and we weren't catching anything at all and we put our nets on the other side of the boat and we caught a lot of fish and we couldn't even bring it to shore. Maybe this is Jesus again and that's what we find in verse 7. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a 100 yards from the shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Because what are these? What's Jesus pointing to? What's he referring to? Oh, we don't actually know because Scripture doesn't tell us, but I believe that Jesus was pointing to the fish. Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your former way of life? Do you love me more than your job? This is a moment for Peter where Jesus is beginning the process of reaching out to him. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. And take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. There's something incredible that comes out of the story, and it's this. We find the difference between religion and Jesus. And if you've ever wanted to know what religion is all about and what Jesus is all about, you find it in a compelling way right here in John chapter 21. Here's what religion does. Religion condemns. Religion scoffs. Religion turns up its nose. Especially after an epic failure. Failure. And if you've ever walked through that, maybe you've experienced that scoffing and that condemning and that turning of the nose from religion. There's a lot of pain in that and a lot of hurt. And this is not what Jesus does in this moment at all. I mean, here is somebody who has failed him in a spectacular kind of way and Jesus begins to reach out. Here's what Jesus does and here's the difference between religion and Jesus. Jesus restores he restores. And he does it again and again and again. He did it for Peter, and he's done it for a lot of other people in Scripture, and he's done it for us. Jesus just restores. That's what he's all about. I think it's really interesting that in this paragraph, Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And I don't think Peter got what was happening because our paragraph tells us that Peter was actually frustrated and like, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. But I think there is purpose and a very specific plan for Jesus asking him three times. And that was to simply restore him for the three times that he had denied Christ. See, Jesus knew what was happening on the inside of Peter. And he wanted to give him that chance to say, Lord, I love you. I love you I love you and to do that three times to bring him back into the game of using his life. See, this is Jesus on a beach inviting Peter to get back into the game because the past doesn't have to define you. You are not what you've done and you are not what's been done to you. Peter, don't let the past eat your future. Get back in the game. Come on, it's time to go again and serve me. There's three takeaways I want to share from John chapter 21. Here's the first one. God's love can compensate for our greatest failure. And if you're here and you're sensing that's a part of your life, whether that's real or way in the past or whatever that might look like for you, just know God's love can compensate for our greatest failure. Failures. It's big enough. It's strong enough. It is wide enough. God's love can compensate. And sometimes we've got to remind ourselves of that. We see that in this story. God's love can compensate all of the time for our greatest failures. He just does. Secondly, God is a specialist who is completely able to turn our failures into things that He can use for good. God is a specialist, and he's always doing this. I began to look at Scripture and find different individuals who had failed in different ways. And so I just started to write a list of what these people had done and how God used them in spite of their failure. And so I want to share some of this list with you. Consider Moses. He stuttered and murdered and then became a deliverer. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver, but used by God. Gideon, a timid and less than willing laborer who became an intrepid leader of men. David, an adulterer who is called a man after God's own heart. Hezekiah, He was an idolatrous father's son. That's not a great way to start in life, but he became a king known around the world for doing right in the eyes of God. Esther was an orphan, and she became a queen and used by God to save her people. Isaiah, a man of unclean lips, was used to prophesy about the birth of Jesus. Matthew, a government employee who ripped off people became a close follower of Jesus and an author in Scripture. Paul, a persecutor and a murderer, became the greatest missionary in history and the author of two-thirds of the New Testament. And Peter, a businessman who denied ever knowing Christ, became one of the world's greatest teachers. See, God is a specialist, and he is not afraid to take the failures in our life, no matter how epic they are or even how tiny they might seem to us, God is able to take all of that and use that for his good. We have to allow him to do that, though. But God can because he's a specialist. Here's our third takeaway. Let Jesus restore you so you can help others. And maybe that's your issue and maybe that's your thing. You haven't allowed Jesus to restore you and sometimes I think we kind of fight against this and we run and we hide and we isolate and then we blame and we begin to drift and follow Jesus from a distance and we replace our passion for him with fish or stuff or whatever. I want to go back to our groups for a second. Group number one is a group of people who have failed and they've just kind of buried that in their past. Group number two are those who have failed and they're allowing that to define them. Group number three are those who really haven't failed in any significant way, but they're afraid to try anything at all because they might uh, fail and failure is something that absolutely scares them to death. Would you imagine with me for just a moment what would happen in our community and the places that we go, and where we serve, and where we work, and where we go to school, and where we live, if we would get past the fear of failure, and if we would not allow the past to eat our future. Let me just imagine what could happen, and what God could do through us. And so, I want to add a fourth group to this, and the fourth group are those of us who will get real with God and others and not allow the past to eat our future. And we're going to get real with God and we're going to get real with others, and here's what that takes. Because it's not an easy thing. It's not a cliche where, all right, I'm going to get real with God, I'll get real with others, and everything's going to work out, because that's not the case. This is kind of a tough thing, and it's a hard step to take. Getting real with God and getting real with each other means there is no hiding, there is no compromising, there is no running, there is no isolating, there is no drifting. means we hang on to each other and we hold each other accountable and we continually remind each other that God is a specialist who can take the worst of our failures and actually turn that around and use it for his good. He's done it over and over and over again, and he'll continue to do it in all of us. So real with God and real with others in allowing him to use the worst of our stuff. And here's why. Because we cannot let the past eat our future. We can't do it. Father, we're thankful for John 21 and for this great story that is here about an individual who really struggled, an individual who failed, an individual who didn't get it right and he kind of just left and thought it was all over for him. But yet it's in that moment that you began to reach out to him And you met him in that spot of failure. And you picked him up and you looked in his eyes and you said in so many words, Peter, don't let the past eat your future. I have a role for you. It's amazing to think when you read through Scripture that Peter stepped through that and you used him to build that early church and to do something dynamic. God, I pray that as we walk through the rest of our time together, that you would just help us to think through failure. Help us to think through how you can use the worst of our stuff for something good, something beautiful. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening. We'd also like to invite you to join us for any of our Sunday gatherings as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 915 and 11 a.m.